you're listening to the film file the film show for film geeks by film geeks so let's get geeky and get on freaky <laughs> Hello, I'm Lee Ford. I think I'm still Andy Meakin. I hope so, because otherwise, uh, <laughs> unless we're some sort of multiverse, I am talking to the wrong Andy Meakin. Talking of which, you know, I've got a, got some Flash stuff to talk about before we talk about anything else. Oh, you're going to Flash at me, are you? Yeah, well, I, I've been thinking about the Flash over the last week, and especially in line of what we're going to be talking about a little bit later with the box office. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the way that it's it's underperformed. And yet everyone's yep. saying it was the um, greatest superhero film ever made. And, and so one thing hit me, you know, when you go back and you start analysing a movie, why yep. didn't The Flash go back and stop the murderer rather than go and do the thing with the um, tin? I think it was because they hinted that um, major changes can have a major effect. So he did the the thing with the tin as a minor thing because the only thing he interacts with is the tin. Or why didn't he go back and find out who the murderer was? And then they could have done You know, the guy works in CSI. He has an entire police department at his fingertips. Could have gone out and said, oh, that's the guy who killed my mom. And now I know it is. I can, I can, uh, I can free my dad that way. It's just one of those things that you think about when you think story logic. Why didn't you go back <laughs> and check out who, who was the person who actually did the crime? Well, I was fine with the fact that the, the way that, I mean, spoiler alert for those people who've not seen it, and let's be honest, everyone stopped seeing it now already. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> it. Let's just make it, you're not going to see it. And we'll talk a bit about box office performance when we get to the news later, and I've got some thoughts on uh, what's happening this year. Uh, but I quite liked the resolution that it had at the end, that in order to manage to change time without it causing a major ripple effect, he simply gets his dad to look up at the camera by moving the items on the shelf. Yeah, it was cute. It was cute. Um, don't don't get me wrong. I'm just thinking, why didn't you find out who the burglar was <laughs> while you're there? Why don't you check it out? I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was just weighing up like the possible risks of being spotted, interacting, causing a huge ripple effect. He interacts with his mom, and we think that she recognises him because they've got similar kind of eyes. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not pulling the film apart because we had a good time. This is a trope in all time travel films that they always end, end up meeting someone who kind of recognizes them, but doesn't really. And there's a little hint of like, maybe they do know. And it's like, oh, tropes. I'm fine with that trope. I love time travel films, as you know. Um, so have you had a good couple yes. of weeks? Because uh, we've, we've, we've not been on air for, well, we did probably. that bottle episode, didn't we? Yeah. And we've had some good feedback from that. Uh, uh, yeah. There's, there's quite a few people who've uh, listened to it and didn't even realize it was a bottle episode when they listened to it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, I love doing the show, as you know, but it was it was really nice just to have a, a little break from it, even though we did a good sort of half an hour banter yeah. that we we probably um, probably would have done anyway. But it was just nice to just step back because we do this every single week and we we I don't think we've missed a week, have we, since we went we went weekly with it. Nope. Uh, by the way, hello, Australia. Are we still up there? <laughs> Are we still in your top 50? We're still we're still there. Uh, and hi Utah, because we don't ever want to uh, say goodbye to Utah. But it was just, it was nice, to, just nice to have a, a have a have a break from it. I had um, I mentioned that I'd, I'd lost my dear friend, uh, and we spread the ashes. And I know that's going to sound very very depressing way to start the uh, start the conversation, but it was a, it was a, a lovely event with with people being 
unlike a funeral where everybody is is, is clearly upset this was an, a nice time to reflect and i met a, a lovely chap uh, a film director called hans horn who did a movie uh, a lot of film geeks remember called adrift about some people yeah, who got that. off the boat and couldn't get back onto the boat hmm. which i think was based on a on a, a real life event anyway uh, i met hans horn and we became instant instant friends um so much so that we're looking at um, a couple of projects together uh, which was really good when we we bonded that well we've kept in touch almost daily since there it's a bit of a bromance i think that's going off so uh yeah so uh interesting news one of the scripts that i sent you to read that uh, instantly he was on fire for so mm -hmm. um a lot of scripting stuff this last week oh nice my week was uh during my week off before we took our break i had the main episode to edit and then i edited together the pieces for the bonus episode and editing for that bonus one was it was an hour because it was just taking that <laughs> yeah makes a change that flash chat that we had and just dropping that in with like our opening sting and it it basically freed me up and freeing me up gives me all the time that I want to just watch TV and watch films because I, I don't yeah. really, I don't really do much oh, else. <laughs> um, I did plow through all of Black Mirror later season. Is it good? I got asked to talk about it on the radio yesterday, and I I, I did say I've not seen it. I know you're not a huge fan. I'm indifferent with it. I think some of the brilliant episodes are in fact that brilliant episodes. It's the way that it is, and sometimes unapologetic about its dourness yeah. uh, and this the fear of technology rather than what technology can do so i i do have a, a mixed relationship with it it's a mixed bag this season there's three episodes that i really enjoyed the opening episode joni's awful plays on the use of ai technology in media and entertainment in quite a smart and clever way it's funny it's thought-provoking and it's kind of ho semi-hopeful at the end of it okay favorite episode doesn't even feel like a black mirror episode and that's the last episode of it which is demon 79 it's a comedy horror movie set in 1979 about a demon trying to convince someone to kill three people before the apocalypse to stop the apocalypse from taking place and it's brilliant it's really okay. good it doesn't have any any technology links it's more of the black mirror approach of reflection of society and it's reflecting society's norms and ideals from the 70s so it's it's not a futuristic one that most black mirrors are but i don't mind it and the second best one is uh, beyond the sea which is <laughs> beautiful dark twisted and disturbing is all that i'm going to say the other two Maisie day and lock henry garbage utter really garbage okay. lock henry in particular thinks it's smarter than it is but within the first 10 minutes i straight up called every twist that it think it, it thought it was going to throw at me and i just sat there for the rest of it going this is just tedious and uh mazy day was it, it starts off as one thing and then turns into something completely different and i don't get what they were trying to do with it but this is what i like about anthology shows though because there's two there two episodes there that i didn't like at all but the other three more than me well, that's not it. too bad i'm i mean i watched the uh guillermo del taro mm. uh, anthology and half of them were good and half of them were very poor yeah uh, but that's the thing you can you can sort of pick and choose when you get to them and also you don't have to sit and watch them in any particular order yep i'd, I'd definitely say that um demon 79 is probably going to be right up your street i think you might enjoy that okay I'll, i will get around for it it's on my list i have managed to get through finally caught up with the tetris movie which i enjoyed everybody else in the household got bored and only got halfway through but i, I enjoyed it, it. I, I like the visual stylings that it does when it goes a bit a bit fictional 
the car chase bit, which never took place. So it adds in like um, pixelated graphics to basically go, yeah, this wasn't real. Yeah. But but kind of our big news is we're getting to see Indiana Jones a little bit earlier than everyone else. And, and we're, we're looking forward to it. It's had a, had a mixed bag review. Some people call it great. Uh, I've not really, I've got to be honest, I've not really read the negatives. I've only read the positives. But I am looking forward to it. And um, yeah, yeah, simple as that. Yeah, I mean, I, I want it to just be better than Crystal Skull. And some of the negative reviews, I've not read them all, but I've skimmed through a few of them. And some of them are saying that it just feels generic and doesn't feel that it's doing anything different. And it's just ticking the boxes of an Indiana Jones film. And you know what? I think I, I think I kind of want that. I just want it to remind me what was good. The same way that, I mean, I know that everyone now retroactively has decided that they all hated it. But when Force Awakens came out, everyone loved that. And why did they love it? Because it reminded them of what Star Wars used to be. Yeah, and that's all that I. No, I think it's interesting. It's interesting. We're looking at it. But the, the negativity, there's. I mean, it didn't help that they tried to showcase it at Cannes because straight away, you're yeah, yeah, showing it to the initial wrong audience, and from that point onwards, people were just ready to jump on any faults because the Cannes audience had already said this is a bit rubbish. So all the standard critics have now sat around going, "Well, let's see how bad this can be." It happens too much. Yeah, and it's the wrong way to approach any film is to say, "Oh, it's going to be bad." Interestingly enough, if you try to do something too different with Indiana Jones, people would go, it's not Indiana Jones either. Exactly. So damned if you do and damned if you don't. It's like if John Wick suddenly the last episode decided just to become uh, an introvert and not, and not use violence and just sit around uh, writing to people he'd upset. <laughs> it's, a, it's a different take on it. He wrote a lot of letters. You know, he reached out to people and, and sort of apologized. And, you know, what could he do for the community? It would be a different movie. But would people think, yeah, I like that they've tried something different. Got away from all this fighting and, and shooting. No, they would be they would be writing and they'd be rioting in the streets, what they would be doing. I think I'd actually still be quite interested in it, to be honest with <laughs> well, you. You and I would be going, you and I would be saying, well, look, at it. you know what people have been saying? You've got to do something different with the John Wick series. <laughs> making making him a, a, a keyboard warrior. That's that's pretty, pretty different. <laughs> But yeah, so, so Indiana Jones, we'll be talking about it next week because we're both quite looking forward to it. We both like James Mangold and what he brings to films. We do. Uh, so let's just remain hopeful. Let's keep positive. I've seen too much of it with people being negative about films before they come out. And then suddenly yeah. they finally watch it and realise they were wrong all along. So why be toxic and negative about something that you've not seen? It's always been our mantra. I'm not going to mention his name because I'm not going to promote his bloody Twitter feed. <laughs> Don't. I but know what you mean. You, you know which you know which person there is who's been there. Very I, I, I know exactly. Toxic about exactly Elemental. Who you mean. And now he's watched it. He now says it's one of the best films that Pixar have made. For the past year, he's been saying, nobody wants this. This looks trash. Utter idiots. I don't, I don't get it. Just be positive. Well, it's it's so easy to prejudge a movie. Oh, I don't like this because, and then you go, but, but you've not seen a frame of it, yeah. not even a still. And how can you talk about a film negatively and until you've seen it or not get caught up in the, oh, I've, I've read a bad review for it, so it's bound to be terrible. Um, if you've read uh, 200 bad reviews for <laughs> it, then I think you can pretty much say, yeah. It's like Rotten Tomatoes. I, I don't go on Rotten Tomatoes because yeah. you know what? I don't like every I don't like every sandwich that's out there. I love a good sandwich, but I don't like every single sandwich. But some people like the sandwiches that I don't. It's fine to see trailers and marketing and go, you know what? This doesn't look like it's for me. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pass. But yeah. if you feel like that, 
don't then spend months lambasting the thing that you've not seen the end product of. Neither of us had any int intention of watching Greatest Days, the Take That musical, because neither of us are bothered with the Take That <laughs> musical. Yeah. Are we going to say that it's utter garbage? No, because neither of us have seen the Take That musical. Yeah, my missus went to see it and she enjoyed it. She didn't think it was great, but she had a, a decent time with it and, and it found the audience. Mine saw it. She's seen the live uh, version of the musical. And she watched the film version with one of her friends. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. So it's hitting the go. audience that it needs to hit. If we're not the audience. That's it. Exactly. Hey, talking of audiences, you know, every week we do our socials challenge. And we didn't do a fresh one last week, but we left one hanging. So, Andy, uh, remind us on our social challenge. What did we set? And what did people say? We asked you. And it's been a fortnight for this. So it's kind of been the question of the fortnight because of our little break that we took. On-screen politicians, be it just politicians or political leaders or presidents or prime ministers, who's the best? Who are the kind of politicians that you think that we had in the real world? And who are the worst? Who are the absolutely despicable? Who are the Donald Trumps? I well, I think, you, I think you ended this with your answer. <laughs> Uh, and I think the entire internet just applauded it because uh, it was such a perfect answer. On the initial thought is the starting people, like the, the, the best president is clearly got to be Morgan Freeman's president, Tom Beck in Deep Impact. I mean, he yeah. doesn't do a lot, but he accepts that the world is ending and just basically wants to calm people. Absolutely brilliant. And worst, Greg Stilson from Dead Zone, played marvellously by Martin Sheen. And of course, Donald Trump popping up in home alone too that's got to be the worst worst politician on screen well i went with i went with jed bartlett out of the west wing i think is, yeah is is a fantastic uh fantastic president and the president that we always i think everybody wishes that they'd actually had but so yes president uh jed bartlett uh and for uh corruptible uh the british version of our house of cards uh urquhart yeah being the worst politician ever and uh and yet so believable <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, absolutely believable. Now, we didn't get a huge amount of responses because I think that people see the word politics these days and just go, no, yeah. no, I've had enough of this. Totally, totally understand. But what we did get, um, Stephen Young, sculptor, replied with, it's got to be <laughs> Meryl Streep in The Iron Lady. <laughs> oh, 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 yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I was, I was instantly going to don't look up then, but um, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, but being a, a Yorkshire-based podcast, uh, northern-based England, anything with Maggie Thatcher is very, very, very controversial. Uh, I remember when it came yeah. out and those people like campaigning outside the cinema for us to not show it. I, I, That's interesting. <laughs> I was in it. I was in a movie. I in fact, I tell you what the movie was. It was The Artist, and the trailer ran for Iron Lady, and people were were booing the trailer i mean i kind of get it because of what she did to this country like particularly the northern industry of steel etc and oh, the docklands we, we, we just like to call it decimation in, in this end of the world however i don't remember people campaigning when um, downfall was getting shown but so obviously people are happy with what adolf hitler did but they're not <laughs> happy with the life story of, of uh, maggie thatcher uh, anyway let's not get into too much politics uh, gary oldman as winston churchill is one of his thumbs up ones well, yeah good choice never went there uh lindsay story <laughs> i love this choice tim robbins as president in austin powers when he just laughs at dr e dr evil's one million dollar ransom 
or when he destroys the White House. <laughs> oh, good call. <laughs> nice deep cut, that one. And I rewatched Austin Powers' uh, <laughs> International Man, is Myster- Man of Mystery just because I saw this post and went, oh, I need to watch that film again. So that's one of the things that... that's This is what happens. People reply with stuff, and I end up with more things on my watch list. John uh, at Old Man Chimes. Jack Nicholson as James Dale in Mars Attacks. Yeah, yeah. Despicable, but funny. Yeah, he likes him even though he knows he's not supposed to. And Kevin James in Pixels for the worst. And I think that's just Kevin James in general. <laughs> I've got a film, one of my, my reviews today is a Kevin James performance, which is stunning. Oh, I'm very surprised, but um, we'll get to that. Um, Carl, the worst one is Harvey Dent in the Batman films. Okay. I'm going to assume that once he's become Two-Face, not when he was actually like quite a good crusader yeah, yeah. against crime. And his favourite Zach Galifianakis's character in the campaign, and yeah, I can see that it's a fun character, and um, he, he's not the smartest of tools in the box, but you know what? It seems like the kind of leader that I'd be happy with. Uh, Scott throughout best one, Thomas Whitmore in Ind- Independence Day. Yeah, guy, yes, a stirring president. Yeah, that speech alone is enough to just rally you to just be hopeful that we can defeat this alien menace. For the worst, he's got the mayor of Footloose for how dare he just ban dancing. I mean, what kind of weirdo? Uh, mayor Vaughan in Jaws, <laughs> which, yeah, people are dying, but we're going to keep the beaches open. And his top one for the worst is John Hurt in V for Vendetta. Oh, yeah, yeah. Completely off my radar, that one. Yeah. Over on Mastodon, Salty Red Popcorn. A part of me will always have a soft spot for Hugh Grant and his dance moves in Love Actually. Worst, maybe Frank Langella's Bulldog in Dave. Although I'm sure there are many who did much worse, but he was trying to flex on Dave, Kevin Klein, not the TV channel. <laughs> Point that out for those people who've not seen Dave. <laughs> and the Hugh Grant in Love Actually that he put forward for the best. I mean, I kind of agree with because I've got no love for that film, but Hugh Grant makes at least five minutes of it almost tolerable. Me, You know, me too. I I, I was there at an early screening, I think. So were you, actually, of, yep. of Love Actually. And uh, it never won me over. I know people who adore it never, ever won me over. Now, I've got a couple of additional ones that I wanted to throw in for best and worst. Um, Harrison Ford as James Marshall in Air Force One for best. Yeah. Um, he kicks ass. Uh, for worst, Tracy Flick in Election. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Not exactly a politician, but it's an analogy of politics. But surely the worst politician on screen of all time, Emperor Palpatine. Oh, yeah, yeah, you see, never never went there as a politician, of course. <laughs> Very well thought through. Right the way through from, I mean, as bad as the prequels are, his scheming and machinations to get himself into um, ultimate power. Yeah, worst politician of all time. Excellent. Some really, really good answers. Um, so thank you for everybody who, uh, who, who found the time to talk about politics, even though they were cinematic politics. Uh, and this week's question, and we're going back more down to a down the film road. So, out of all the films, the classic films, films that you love, films which are just personal to you, what has the best last scene of any movie? So, not the climatic fight scene, but the the very end of the movie, like the closing shot or piece of dialogue. Get the ball rolling. Give you an example. So, for me. The end of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. The freeze frame and the pull out from the freeze frame is the perfect way to end 
that movie, if not any movie of all time. So what is the perfect last scene or last shot of any film? Let us know. You can do so on our socials. And Andy, where can you find those socials? Go on to your usual social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon. Search for Film File UK. There we are. Or if you want to, if you're listening on Spotify, the question of the week will get posted alongside the episode on there. So you can just reply via there. Or you can answer it via email, podcast at filmfile.uk. We're so accessible. We are. I'm looking forward to reading them out next week on next week's show, unless anything happens like a huge, dirty, great asteroid <laughs> coming to hit the Earth. Who knew? Happens every week. So what have we got for you on this week's show? Well, it's jam-packed as normal. We have a deep dive into Tim Burton's The Big Fish. We've got reviews of... I've seen Asteroid City, which released at cinemas this you, week. Sir, how very dare you. <laughs> and also, it came out last week on Netflix, but I definitely want to talk about it. Extraction 2. Yep, I'm there for that one. I'm going to give you a short but very concise review of a film that landed a couple of weeks ago on Netflix, and that is Becky. But before any of that, yes, we've got the box office, and then we've got the news. So, box office then. Are we at the end of days because The Flash, reportedly the best superhero movie ever made, seems to have literally run out of steam? So over in the US, the box office looks like this. At the top spot, again, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Having really strong holdovers week on week, it took another 19 million this past weekend. Second place... Elemental with 18.4 million only had a 33% drop off on previous week. So whilst it didn't open particularly strong, it's holding over well and might actually continue gaining some momentum. The Flash drops down into third place, taking only 15.1 million this weekend. It's been an absolute washout for The Flash. Its drop off was over 70% this weekend, which is significantly bad. No Hard Feelings is in fourth place, taking 15 million. And Transformers Rise of the Beasts, still within the top five, taking another 11.8 million. Here in the UK, it's Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse in the top spot again, taking another 1.9 million. The Flash drops into second place, taking 1.3 million this week. Asteroid City is in third place, where's Anderson's new one, which we'll be talking about later on the show, taking 1.1 million in the UK. Little Mermaid is in fourth place with 1.1 million. And No Hard Feelings opens in fifth place with 859,000. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse worldwide has now taken 563 million, which is significantly better takings than what the first film did, making it a huge success. Elemental is only up to 124 million. It's not had a full international release at this point in time, so we might see the figures worldwide start to spike a bit in the coming weeks. And The Flash, it's not only been disappointing in the US, but all around the world, it's only made $212 million so far. Considering it was predicted to have taken $130 million on its opening weekend in the US alone, that's not very good. And it'll be very lucky if this is a film that breaks even. The big question that's buzzing round as a result of the box office performances of so many films now is, what's happening? Why is everything suffering are DC seriously in trouble or is it the industry as a whole? And I've got some thoughts on this. 
Okay, I'm, I'm ready to hear your thoughts. I mean, I think we are living in, in very interesting times. I, I just want to point out that the latest Mission Impossible movie got its uh, premiere uh, in the UK this week. Yeah. And people calling it the film of the year so far. But I'm considering this more than just superhero fatigue because uh, people are still saying fantastic and wonderful things mm. about Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, which is... is from what I believe, has uh, has bumped up again in in the box office. Yep, uh, it's holding over really well. It's already outperformed the previous film, and it's a huge success. The big problem, it's not superhero fatigue, because Elemental, which is a Pixar film, has bombed. It's clearly, you know, it's easy to point fingers and say, well, The Flash failed because Ezra Miller and all the problems. Well, no, because uh, how come Shazam, Fury, the Gods and Black Adam failed then? Because they weren't Ezra Miller. They were just DC. Okay, it's people don't like DC because Zack Snyder's not making them anymore. No, because there's been Marvel films that have underperformed. There's been other action films that have underperformed. It's the industry as a whole and it's your blockbusters. And the problem is, this is all an after effect of um, when lockdowns happened and everything was slowed. We knew that this year was going to be packed. We knew that it was going to be loaded. We didn't expect that people would be skint at the same time. Yeah. In, this, in this past month, there's too many films being released close together. We've not had a week go by where there's not one or two films that have been like, oh, that's, that's a must-see. Now, if I didn't get to watch films for free, I'd have had to choose this month from Asteroid City, The Flash, Spider-Verse, Boogeyman, Transformers and Chevalier, all, all films that I had on my radar to watch. I was looking forward to them all, but if I could only afford a maximum of two, Asteroid City and Spider-Verse get my cash, so The Flash has gone. Transformers has gone. And there's your films that are underperforming. Next month, over July, we've got Indiana Jones, we've got Ruby Gilman, we've got Elemental in the UK, we've got Insidious Red Door, we've got Mission Impossible, Barbie, Oppenheimer, TMNT. That's eight films to pick from. I could only pick two. What am I picking? Mission Impossible 7 and Barbie get my money. And guess which two films are tracking better than the others? Interesting, isn't it? And I, I've got a feeling that maybe people want to try something new rather than go back on a nostalgia trip. Yep. I mean, as I said, we're looking forward to Indiana Jones, but you are running the risk with Indiana Jones, no matter how good it is, is that people are going, yeah, I've, I've seen them all and, and it's not my generation. So yep. why am I going, going to watch a film about a, a curmudgeonly old explorer? Now, if it's a good film, that means people are missing out on a great, great film. Potentially, if it's not a great film, people are going to go, well, I'm glad I didn't waste my money. We generally over the, I mean, this is the blockbuster season anyway, but it's usually one film every two weeks over the blockbuster season, one big release and then smaller releases around them. This has been a rare year where every week has been what should have been a major release. And the budgets on these films aren't helping because, you know, you're looking at 200 to 300 million budgets on your big blockbusters. And they're not making it. Spider-Verse only cost, what, 110, 120 million to make? Yeah. It's made 500 million. If it had have made 500 million and then stopped, they'd be more than happy. But if it had a cost like 250 million, like The Flash has, 500 million is not going to cover, cover your overheads. We've released too many films, released too many huge budget films, put them in competition directly against each other. Of course, something's going to suffer. You look at the tracking for um, the coming weeks, Barbie and Oppenheimer. I remember this time last year, people were like, why is Barbie going up against Oppenheimer? Turns out Barbie's tracking for better opening than Oppenheimer. They're expecting Oppenheimer to open in third place behind Mission Impossible on its second week. 
and Barbie on its first week. So Oppenheimer was not the big draw that everyone thought it was last year. Well, I'm, I'm going to just going to jump in on that one. You see, I think they made a huge mistake by opening Oppenheimer as a summer yeah. movie. It doesn't feel. I mean, this is a, this is a, a film which is going to be incredibly well made. It's mm. Christopher Nolan. It's going to have something to say. It's going to be important. Uh, we assume at this point that it's going to be very, very good, but it's still a film about the atomic bomb. Uh, we're living in dark times as it is. It's not a box office draw for people who are thinking, you know what? I fancy it. I fancy it's a summer night. I fancy going to see a film, having a cocktail afterwards. I'll go and see uh, a film about the destruction of, of uh, Japan and put the world at threat mm. for the like 50 odd years. No, I think if they've released it um, late autumn, you know, the, the award yep. ceremony time, I think then is a perfect time for it. But they're trading on the fact that Christopher Nolan is to some extent a recognisable name. I think they've missed the point of going, yeah, there's a war in Ukraine and, and uh, we're all scared for our mortgages. Yep. Um, cost of living is, is, is gone to hell. We'll release a film about the atomic bomb. That'll cheer people up. Or I'll go and see Barbie. Yeah. Oppenheimer should have been a September or early October release. And it's quite quiet during September yeah. and early October. So it would have been, it would have had the screens to do what it wants. It, it slows down a little in August, but even in August, we've got the Meg 2, we've got Gran Turismo, we've got Haunted Mansion, we've got Blue Beetle, we've got The Blackening. And let's be honest, Blue Beetle's flopping there, isn't it? Because out of all those films, which ones have got the recognition? Meg 2 has the recognition, Gran Turismo has the recognition, Haunted Mansion has the recognition. They're the fun escapism. Blue Beetle, flopping. Another DC flop is on its way. And it's the thing where they're going to see DC at the beginning of it and think, oh, that, that Flash movie wasn't very good, was it? Black Adam was a bit poor. DC, yes, DC are in trouble. But it's the blockbuster industry as a whole that's in trouble. We're still seeing reasonable figures coming through the doors watching films, but there's so much for them to choose from that it's divided up against different films. So Spider-Verse has been doing yeah. great for us whereas The Flash hasn't. But we, we personally, as a cinema, haven't lost a huge amount of business because we're still getting that footfall. So cinemas aren't the ones who are particularly... Cinemas haven't recovered. I'm not saying that cinemas are like raking it in at the moment because they still haven't recovered post-COVID. We've still got a good while to go. But we've not been suffering as badly as these films have. Interesting. So that, that makes me think of one other issue, is that people used to go back and see films on repeat viewing as well so hey look I, I saw star wars 12 times you know i went back and i went back and i went back and i don't think people are doing that anymore maybe spider-verse because i think uh, I, I know people have gone to see it a second and a third time because they to take it yeah. all in to enjoy it but fast and the furious X, <laughs> no they they didn't do that they didn't go back and see it again it's usually what the trade papers go, the apocalypse of cinema. And I don't think we're living in those days, but I think we're living in a bit of a rethink of how films are released. Yeah. Next year, with the writer's strike still uh, still happening, potentially we're going to have a lot of, lot of big slots next week. Yeah, I reckon we'll start to see films coming back for anniversary screenings a lot more often next year to fill some of the gaps. Yeah. On, on the subject of cinema recovery, uh, it, the... Accounting firm giant PricewaterhouseCoopers did its annual Global Entertainment and Media Outlook report. And the prediction now is that it won't be until 2027 that global cinema admissions 
and US cinema revenue will come up to comparable levels to pre-COVID. Although it won't, they, they don't expect anytime soon for it to match the heady heights of 2019, which was a particularly good year for cinema. But what was originally predicted yeah. to be a return to form by 2025 has now got an extra two years. Like I say, it's a slow recovery. We'll get there. The lack of content in the coming years through the various strike actions might slow it slow it down a bit, and that's what the new um, analysis of the industry is kind of like suggesting. And speaking of strike actions, whilst there's no traction on the WGA strike, it's still going ahead. There's still no agreements being met. What we do know is that the Directors Guild have voted yes on their new contracts, which run through until 2026. So there won't be any Directors Guild strikes looming. Uh, the hope is that what's being agreed with the Directors Guild will now form a base plan for the negotiations that are currently going on with the Actors Guild. And that will get that signed and sealed without them having to strike. And then from that, they'll be able to do a proposal to the writers off the back of that, knowing what's been agreed along the way. So we're one step closer to some kind of resolution. But within the next month, this could all go wrong if the Screen Actors Guild starts to strike as well. Uh, we already know that they've voted to say that, yes, they will strike if they don't get to reach an agreement by the end of the month. We've got a week to go. By this time next week, we'll hopefully be reporting some good news, but we might be reporting that pretty much everything has stopped and as a result of all the strike actions that are looming or taking place this year's san diego comic con is looking kind of empty yeah notice that um no marvel no nope. no netflix no sony uh no big no studios DC. it's basically all the big studios know that if they booked the hall to do like a presentation well, they can't have any of their writers there if the writers are striking. So they can't talk about any upcoming projects that the writers are working on because it might be a completely different project by the time it gets made. And if the screen actors strike, they won't be able to have any of the stars up there talking about the projects they're going to be working on. So it will just be one table with the director going, I don't know. Uh, so that actually, it might mean that the Comic-Con this year, they might have to talk about comics. I, I mean, it, what a weird idea that would be. I mean, imagine talking <laughs> about comics at a Comic-Con. I mean, that, oh, this, yeah. this is the thing is like Comic Con started off as pretty much comic book convention. Yeah. It's where it came from. But it's over the past two decades that it's kind of been hijacked by Hollywood. But now it looks like it's going to have to revert back to just being about comic book fandom. Blimey. It's the end of days. It's the end of days, Andy. <laughs> A few projects that had started filming have now stalled due to the ongoing strike. We'd reported a few weeks ago that the Penguin series was quite confident in its scripts. Turns out they weren't that confident because they've uh, now stopped filming because they need to make changes. 1923 Season 2 has been delayed indefinitely. We're going to see this. The only thing that seems to be still going on is the Deadpool 3, which I'm still, I still don't know how that's going to turn out if they can't make any changes to the script on set. There's also a load of delays and cancellations that have taken place. Now, I know you're going to be really upset at this cancellation. Yeah, hit me. It's now been revealed that um, Bad Bunny will not be starring in Elm Huerto because of all the delays. Nurse. This was top of my list to watch. We, um, we've we, done nothing but say good things about this. We've been huge fans of the character since his appearance in one comic about 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah, not even a, a good comic, but, you know. Yeah, um, Elm Huerto... El Muerto is dead. It got him put on to delay because of the Writers Guild strike. Um, then they were looking at Bad Bunny's tour dates and they basically realised that this film's never going to happen. And so 
Bad Bunny himself has announced that he's left the project. And most people thought it was a lousy idea. <laughs> um, Disney Pictures have announced massive changes to its release schedule as well. Changes that will impact Marvel movies, the Avatar sequels, the Star Wars films. One change that is for the positive is that Deadpool 3 is now sh now shifted from next November, November 2024, to May 2024, taking over the spot that was pre okay. previously reserved for Captain America Brave New World. The Marvels later this year has been unaffected. This is all changes for going forward from next year. So we have Deadpool 3, May the 3rd, 2024. Captain America has now moved to July the 26th, 2024. There's a new alien film pending for August 16th, 2024. Thunderbolts in December 2024. That was originally a late summer. Blade. <laughs> they still think they're going to get Blade out for February the 14th, 2025. I... I don't think this is ever going to exist. I'm, yeah, if they're hopeful, why not, eh? Fantastic Four is now looking at May 2025. The live-action Moana film, June 2025. Avatar 3, which was supposed to be out next Christmas, not this coming Christmas, not 2023, 2024, is now coming out December 2025. Kang Dynasty, which was supposed to be late summer 2025, is now May the 1st, 2026. Uh, untitled Star Wars films for May 2026 and December 2026, and then Secret Wars in 2027, and then the Avatar sequels sometime after then. Um, Avatar 4, which was originally planned to be coming out for 2027, is now looking at 2029. So there's been okay. a huge amount of changes, and this is partly because of the Writers Guild strike, the gaps that it's going to leave in the market over the next few years, the slowdown that it's going to have. It's to basically spread it out more. And maybe, yeah. you know, maybe fitting Bob Iger's whole thing of quality over quantity. Well, let's hope so. Um, I've got some news. What have you got for us? Uh, I'm going completely off tangent now. Malcolm McDowell, he of A Clockwork Orange. And uh, about 20, 30 years ago, uh, I was seeing a producer about a, a project and he said, you look like a young Malcolm McDowell, which no one else <laughs> ever has ever said and no one else will ever say ever. Uh, but he's working with Derek Jacoby, of course, uh, the great Derek Jacoby, for an adaptation of John William Polidori's classic 19th century novel, The Vampire. So for those who don't know, of course, have not read Polidori's novel, it was the source for many of the vampire stories that we now know and and, and is a pivotal uh, story in, in, in the way of gothic storytelling and preceded Bram Stoker's iconic Dracula. So it is kind of the original take on it. Um, it could say that Polidori was the father of the uh, vampiric literature as we've come mm. to know it today from Dracula right through to, I don't know, Twilight, even Blade. Anyway, this is, uh, doesn't look like it's a big screen. I'm kind of thinking that it will end up as some kind of streaming. But uh, director has not been disclosed, but the screenplay is penned by Rosanna Hamlin and Trisha Ward. Mortal Kombat, which I'm looking forward to so much, has now started shooting, which was confirmed this week. Not really a lot to add to it. We already know the cast list that we've um, been announcing. It all looks pretty top notch. We get to see Carl Urban pop into there. But what we have discovered when they've gone into filming is that Kano, who um, apparently died in the previous film, that's not going to stop anyone in Mortal Kombat from coming back because Josh Lawson oh. is reprising his role as Kano. So uh, I, 
it's going to be fun. It's going to be brutal. Apparently, they've said that they've learned the lessons from the and the mistakes from the first one. All the criticisms that they had, even though people generally enjoyed it, everyone had like a little, eh, but you could have done this. So apparently, they've taken everything on board and they're hoping to deliver the ultimate Mortal Kombat film. And um, I'm there. I am so there. Cronenberg has officially wrapped filming on his horror movie, The Shrouds, only a month after it began filming in Toronto. The story of The Shroud sees Vincent Cassell at play Karsh, a businessman and grieving widower who builds a device to connect with the dead inside a burial shroud. He builds a cemetery where visitors can watch the bodies of their loved ones decompose and soon reevaluates his invention when people begin to vandalise the graves, including that of his wife. Is that Cronenberg senior or junior? It's uh, senior, the 80-year-old David Cronenberg. Uh, Guy Pearce, Diane Kruger, Sandrine Holt, Elizabeth Saunders, Jennifer Dale, Matt Willis and Steve Switzman are co-starring. There's no official release date yet, uh, but expect it to get a limited run at cinemas before dropping onto streaming. It was originally part of an aborted Netflix project, conceived as a TV series, until the streamer got cold feet over working with such a dark subject with Cronenberg, and he went off to do it on his own. I mean, come on, they try to work a deal with Cronenberg. <laughs> Have they ever seen his films? Of course it's going to be dark exactly. and twisted. So we know that Extraction 2 landed on Netflix, and we're going to be talking about it in our reviews later. But Chris Hemsworth has already confirmed that Extraction 3 is already in the works at Netflix. And apparently the first Extraction movie was one of the most viewed films ever on the mm. channel. Went into the multi-millions uh, in a rare move. Uh, Netflix actually discussed the kind of figures that, that Extraction was pulling in. So uh, interesting to see. Uh, and this week saw the UK premiere of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Early tracking on that film points to the franchise best um, dollar intake so far, um, estimating $90 million for its opening weekend. And the reactions and the first reviews are incredibly, overwhelmingly positive. Will Tom Cruise save cinema again this year? Potentially. Over on Netflix again, another thing that's been renewed is Arnold Schwarzenegger's TV series, FUBAR. Not watched it. Have you? Got around to it yet? I've watched it all, thoroughly enjoyed it. It's basically true lies, and um, I'm all there for that. The order's been made at the Streamers Global Tudum event in Brazil this past week. It comes from Reacher and Scorpion creator Nick Santora, following a CIA operative played by Schwarzenegger on the verge of retirement, but he discovers a family secret. I recommend FUBAR. It's a good bit of Arnold Schwarzenegger fun. It's his first TV series. And you know what? I'll be happy for him to stick to TV rather than the film going forward. And also with Netflix, Linda Hamilton has joined the cast of Stranger Things for the final season. I have seen that, yeah. We don't know what character is. We don't know what impact she's going to have. But it's another one of that. This is what Stranger Things does. It taps into, it taps into nostalgia, not just with the storylines, but with the casting. It's always casting yeah. someone from 80s pop culture she'll probably die because any new characters that get introduced in stranger things end up dying <laughs> after about episode five but you know what i'm all there for it take this with a huge dollop of salt but ben affleck has reportedly been spotted on the set of deadpool 3 uh, and of course the internet has gone wild with speculation that he could be back as daredevil who knows not I. I think it'd be funnier if he's back as Batman, in it? <laughs> <laughs> Paddington News? We love Paddington. Paddington News does share some joy that Paddington can 
can only bring. Now, I'll start with the sad news, is that Sally Hawkins won't be back as Mrs. Brown. No, I'm heartbroken. Stop this, this depressing news already. It's tearing my life apart. However, Emily Mortimer has stepped into the role instead. And oh, I'm we'll fine with that. Um, Olivia Coleman and Rachel Zegler and Antonio Banderas have also joined the cast for Paddington in Peru. And this is turning what out to be title. a rather charming, charming cast. Well, you can't get any more charming than, than even Nick Cage cried at Paddington 2. Coleman's character has been indicated to be the Reverend Mother, a cheerful guitar-playing nun who runs a retirement home for birds in Peru. And we know from the other films that Paddington's Aunt Lucy lives in the retirement home. And the story is going to follow Paddington returning home to visit her. The Burr and the Brown family will embark on an unexpected journey through the Amazon rainforest and up to the mountain peaks of Peru, helped along the way by Banderas's dashing and intrepid riff, riverboat captain and his daughter, played by Rachel Zegler. And that's all that I need to know. And this film is going to be an ultimate joy when it finally arrives. I'm in. Um, I'm going to talk about The Flash. Uh, I'm not going to talk about its box office, uh, but just some sort of uh, post-release rumours. One being that The Flash pushed for Christian Bale to make uh, a cameo appearance as Batman, but the actor repeatedly refused. Mm. And other news uh, and rumour comes from Kevin Smith, is that if the film had been a success, then there was the opportunity to look at bringing back Michael Keaton to play uh, Bruce Wayne in a proposed Batman Beyond movie. That's not going to happen. I take a lot of stuff that Kevin Smith says with a huge pinch of salt because he does just throw out a lot of gossip and things that he's found from insiders. He can be as bad as we got this covered at times, but it, it, makes, it makes perfect sense that if it had been a success, they would have spun off more things from it. But it's not been a success, so I think we say goodbye to her, Michael Keaton. And again, keeping in line with DC and a huge, uh, huge pinch of salt. Uh, screen test for Superman Legacy took place last weekend. Uh, multiple scoopers are suggesting that Superman has been found. Um, none of this has been confirmed, so I, I don't normally do this. Yeah. But uh, people are looking at the front runner being David Corrinsweat, who... Mm -hmm. um, I know nothing about at all. He, uh, he counts the House of Cards, politician, uh, We Own This City, and Pearl among his credits. I remember him in Pearl. Yeah. Uh, he's 29, uh, kind of the right age for what James Gunn is proposing to do with Kal-El. The spin-off that we've mentioned previously for the Fast and Furious franchise, which will focus on Hobbs, is apparently going to be titled no, sure. Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Reyes. Uh, and it's just going to tell the story of the rivalry between Johnson's Luke Hobbs and Jason Momoa's Dante Reyes that was introduced in Fast X. You've not seen Fast X. It'll mean nothing yeah. to you. You know yeah. what? I'm there for this because Momoa was the only good thing in that whole film. And I'll be That's happy to hearing. watch him working against The Rock in a side project. I don't think they can ever make him a good guy because he is an absolute psychopath. But... Um, <laughs> But he's a fun psychopath. He's my kind of psychopath. And that's yeah, everybody so needs their own personal <laughs> psychopath. Uh, something else I've never seen, but I think you have, was uh, Star Trek Prodigy, um, the animated Star Trek offshoot. Well, yep. that's been cancelled by Paramount Plus uh, and removed from the service in cost-saving measures. Not everyone in real life is feeling the pinch, even the Star Trek universes. Yep, the same time Paramount have already got the Grease Rise of the Pink Ladies series not only cancelled, but that's getting removed from the service. It's literally only just finished its run 
and they're removing it from broadcast. It's caused some shockwaves amongst the creators who were, again, saying that, you know, you make something, you put it out there, it gets mixed response, but it's still not found its full audience and it doesn't get a chance to find an audience because they just pull the plug and they, they stop anyone from being able to see it on any streaming or means at all. That's the big issue, is that when Disney+, Plus, Paramount+, Plus, HBO, whoever, remove something that was an exclusive for them, where does it go and how do people see it? And do we just see the death of entertainment? Mm. And these these are the factors that have led to the WGA strike. You know, the, the re- yeah. lost revenue from things just vanishing into obscurity. It's why we still believe in having uh, actual physical copies. Yes. Um, we mentioned it years ago. Years, many years in the past. Years. But there's not been a lot of updates. Uh, Matthew Vaughan's spy thriller Argyle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I thought you were going to talk about the Event Horizon TV series, uh, but, you know, carry on. So... That Argyle, for those who can't think back to last year when we last mentioned it, is the spy drama from Matthew Vaughan, which has Henry Cavill in the lead role. We now finally have a release date. Apple Original Films has announced that the film is going to open in cinemas on February the 2nd, 2024, with an exclusive global theatrical release with Universal Pictures to distribute for them. This was originally just going to be an Apple Films for Apple streaming. They've looked at the end product and gone, you know what? We need this to be on the big screen. And that's why we've had no word on it for a while, because they needed to find okay. a partner to release it with. Universal Pictures have stepped in. The script was penned by Jason Fuchs, and it's based on an as-yet-unpublished novel from first-time writer Ellie Conway, although there's apparently some genuine mystery about the book and its author. Um, Vaughan previously said of the film, Argyle is quite specific and different, so weirdly it lends itself a whole new way of being released. Plot specifics are under wraps, uh, but we do know that the film also co-stars Bryce Dallas Howard, Sam Rockwell, Brian Cranston, Catherine O'Hara, John Cena, Dua Lipa, Ariana DeBose, and Samuel L. Jackson. Heck of a cast. That is a great cast. It's an Apple production. It's going to cinemas. Roll on next February, eh? Mm, I'm still of the belief that one of those big streaming services, Netflix, Apple, Prime will eventually start owning cinema chains. Yeah. Anyway, that's my just a theory. Last of Us showrunner Craig Mazin has reportedly worked on a film that you and I are very expectant for, and that is Dune Part Two. And has worked on the script for that one. Looking forward to Dune Part Two. Yes. Oh, giddy with excitement. Can already feel the sand in my shoes. <laughs> couple of trailers that caught my attention over this past couple of weeks. We can talk about what I think you're going to talk about. Well, we'll start with. <laughs> TV series that's coming back. What we do in the shadows, oh. season five. It's a, it's not long to go now, and boy, I can't wait. But you know, I'm not finished. I've not finished the last season yet. Babylon Five: The Road Home animated movie trailer landed. Oh, I didn't see that. I saw the I saw the clip that they showed for it, but I didn't see the trailer. And it looks. It, I love the animation style. I love the you can all the voice cast seem to be there. The the replacement voice cast for the sadly departed actors seem to work okay, but it looks like a great time traveling, nostalgic look back through the Babylon 5 universe. And I'm, I'm so excited for it. And then we've got, oh, we're both looking forward to this film. <laughs> Craven the Hunter. Okay, I, I don't want to spend long on this. Uh, not even the length of the trailer, to be honest. But... No, I said earlier, don't be negative about things. Uh, you know, if yeah. you've not seen the end product, don't be negative. But if you if you see something in the marketing that makes you go, I'm not convinced on this, then maybe just, you know, step away from it. So I think I might step away from talking about Craven going forwards. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to give you the positive. I thought Aaron Taylor-Johnson looked great. I thought he looked great. 
Uh, I'm going to the negative uh, lion blood. Um, <laughs> it's not uh, craven. <laughs> it's not craven. Um, we'll uh, we'll hold judgment. Uh, um, interesting. It's not exactly set the internet alight with positivity, but uh, there were some there were some memorable shots in it that I thought looked quite interesting. It looks bloody. I, it and looks the one brutal. thing I do I will take away from it as a positive that he didn't necessarily come across as a heroic figure. And that was, I found interesting. I didn't feel I was watching a film about uh, a hero, if yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah, I get, I get that's that. That's it should be. I'm hoping that that's just misdirection in the editing with the, the, the lion blood, giving him some kind of powers, because he's not supposed to have powers. He, he did get powers from, from spiders at one point, though, didn't he? Well, that was channeling the spirit of the spider. That was when they started introducing the magics and stuff. Um, yeah. He, he, he's in, injected himself with various serums over the years. But the whole idea of the character is he wants to prove that man is the ultimate animal and man can defeat anything. And then when he, when he kills something, he wears the skin of it. Whereas this seems to be a conservationist and that's not Craven the Hunter. It looks good. As in, it vis visibly looks great. Yeah, yeah, it did. It actually, I've got to be honest, it, it did have a... A much more cinematic look than than what I expected, but then again, so did the Mobius trailer. Yeah, I'm not convinced at what Sony are doing with these characters. I don't know where they're going. I'm intrigued with the little hint at Rhino being in there mm -hmm. because we're going to get a proper Rhino, not a big mecha suit. I'm intrigued by that. I'm keeping my expectations completely low on this one. But the trailer, Aaron Taylor Johnson looks great. Someone pointed out as well is like when he's chasing after people and he's on all fours. Why would anyone do that? Because human human evolution, we can't run faster on all fours than on two legs. <laughs> so it makes no sense that any human would drop down onto all fours because you'd suddenly be slower. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. And to round off the news, uh, there's just an update on news from six months ago. Okay. Remember six months ago, the actor and avid hiker Julian Sands? went yeah. missing in the Boldy Bowl area northeast of Los Angeles. In the past 24 hours, hikers have found human remains in the area, which are still oh. yet to be identified. But hopefully for all of his loved ones and all of his friends and family, this will bring some closure to... Yeah. The, the, they've not been able to find anything. It must have been horrible to have gone six months not knowing what's happened. And the story kind of went quiet across across media outlets. So Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a, a, a tragedy, but let's hope, as you say, for now, it, 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 does, it does bring closure. Anyway, folks, that's this week's The News. You're listening to The Film File. Yes, the film show for film geeks by film geeks, presented to you by two of the geekiest film geeks I've ever met, but yet strangely attractive. Um, if you want to know more about the show and you've not already subscribed, the, the big question is why not? Because we tell you this every week, every week. And we don't do, we don't cheat on this. We don't do a pre-record. We do it fresh every week to just try and convince you. So if you've already subscribed, thank you very much. Hello, Australia. If you haven't, why not just do so? All you have to do, head over to your favorite podcast platform, search for the film file, hit the subscription button, and please, please, please leave a like. Uh, the more people that we get listening to the show, the more subscribers, it gives us the opportunity to expand. And uh, basically, by the end of it, we hope to take over the world. It's not a lot to ask. Totally just, just subscribe and tell your friends if uh, if you haven't done so. I know a couple of people this week have subscribed to it and their life is instantaneously more happy. Yeah. 
nine out of ten podcast listeners are happier than those who don't subscribe take that to the bank it's better than a shot to the veins (laughs) andy if you want to get in touch with us how can you do so because i want to get in touch just to keep praising this show you can get in touch with us via social media just go onto social media channels search for film file uk we'll pop up pop up there we're on all the main social media channels you can get in touch with us via email as well podcast at filmfile.uk any thoughts suggestions questions is there a film that you're trying to track down but you can't remember the name of we love challenges send it over to us and we'll probably end up adding it to a deep dive as well because we're so susceptible to influence. Um, and if you are interested, you can sponsor the show, get involved in the show in many, many different ways. Give cash, give presents, give uh, give prizes. We don't mind. If you're a business, get in touch. Anyway, moving on. It's now time for this week's deep dive. Dive, dive, dive. We're going to be talking about the 2003 American fantasy comedy drama directed by Tim Burton, starring Ewan McGregor, from the novel of the same name by Daniel Wallace. Yes, it's Big Fish, and that's not a lie. Now, which one's it going to be? The one about the witch. As a child, William loved the stories of his father's life. They were incredible, amazing, magical. But boys grow up. Dad, can we talk? And magic fades away. I believed your story so much longer than I should have. I felt like a fool to have trusted you. You think I'm fake? Take a straight and stronger course to the car. That really happened? Not everything your father says is a complete fabrication. You are in for a surprise. From the imagination of director Tim Burton. Big Fish. So the film stars Ewan McGregor, Albert Finney, Billy Crudup, Jessica Lange, Helena Bonham Carter, Anison Lohan, Steve Buscemi and Danny DeVito. And the film tells the story of a frustrated son who tries to distinguish fact from fiction in the life of his father, who is to say a teller of tales tall tales at that the story is about a reconciliation between a dying father and his son and this was and i think most tim burton films are are very personal but there is something in this Mm. which makes it transcend the usual sort of tim burton film but also gives it a quality that i don't think we've seen before and that is real real heart Andy, I, I remember this film coming out. Uh, I remember seeing it and I am being very, very touched. I haven't lo- lost a, a parent, came close a couple of years ago. But even so, I think after this film came out, I think I went for a, a drink with my dad because I thought I need to do that. And interestingly enough, and, and fact and fiction merge here, I got talking to my dad who told me tales of his time in the Air Force, which I never knew. And I always kind of relate that to big fish and that's what it's about it's about a story coming to terms with that his father was a teller of tales mm. and we see two parallel storylines we see uh billy crudup uh with his dying father played by albert finney uh and his mother jessica lang as they come to terms with the fact that his father is, is going to be leaving them very soon and then we see the young adventures of edward bloom the 
title character, played by Ewan McGregor, who recounts his life story and some of the fantastical things that have happened to them. Whether they're true or false, is it kind of left up to you? I think this is a delightful film, brilliant script by one of my favorite screenwriters, John August. I think this is a, a very unusual Tim Burton film, yet is very, very Tim Burton for all the right reasons. Uh, and I think it's 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 a beautifully well-told tale. I think there's mm. a, uh, an honesty to it and, and a fascination for it that, that is about what's real, what's fantastic, what do we leave out in the truth to make something seem more comprehensible or sometimes more fantastical, uh, and what isn't true, and what in the end does it, does it all matter about what's true or fiction in someone's life? This is the first time I've watched this film since it first released on the big screen. Oh, really? Yeah, I've, I've never gone back to revisit it. And it, I think it's a very underwatched and um, underappreciated one. Whenever people rattle off Tim Burton's films, Big Fish kind of gets forgotten. And I think it's because it doesn't feel like a Tim Burton film. It doesn't have the stylings of like the, the usual gothic look and structure of his like the majority of his output this feels a very fantastical and like you say it feels a very personal tale it's not just from the tim burton aspect that this became a personal tale because the novelist daniel wallace drew upon his own relationship with his father for inspiration when writing the book john august found inspiration from his family having lost his father when he was at college mm -hmm. and so he drew from that to add parts of him and burton was drawn to the project because he was never close to his parents but when he lost them in 2000 and 2002, it impacted him in a way that he never quite understood. And this film was a way for him to try to understand that connection that he actually did have with parents who he kind of was estranged with. And that's the whole point of the film is, you know, Billy Crudup's character, Will, he doesn't feel connected to his dad because yeah. he's always taken everything that his dad said is just fantasy fictional stories and he never knows the truth and so he doesn't get close to him but he realizes that you know sometimes there's elements of truth within every bit of fantasy and you don't necessarily have to believe everything but you have to understand why they're telling it and the reason why albert finney's and ewan mcgregor's edward bloom is telling these fantastical stories is because he touches people's lives yeah and that's the whole aspect of it is that while the elements of truth of the characters that he's met throughout his journey, throughout his life, and his life is far more fantastical than what Crudup's Will thought that it was. He doesn't realise that he actually did go to war. He didn't realise that he actually did meet these people. And whilst he's embellished some of the things, but each of the people, when they gather together for his funeral, and you realise that what he brought to their lives through telling the st his stories, through just wanting, wanting to engage people, wanting to bring joy to the world it's beautifully told it's beautifully shot yeah it's the importance of storytelling in humanity and sometimes how embellishing that story can make something a lot more important and magical the reconciliation between father and son the emotional bonding there man by the end of this film i had tears streaming down my face i've forgotten how hard hitting this was on a heartfelt deeply emotional level it's one of them that it really makes you think about your own life and your own connections and what you mean and yeah i look towards my kids now and think i don't want them to feel distant from me and i can be a hell of a storyteller i am an edward bloom <laughs> i take like a simple story and i like to emphasize and i like to embellish and i like to talk around it and set the scene set the tone set the mood sometimes a sprinkle of fiction 
mostly truth. But everybody does that, don't we? Yeah. I like to think that my kids can distinguish what parts are the truth and what parts are just me adding a bit of showmanship onto it. And, and that's what the heart of this story is. It doesn't matter that Edward Bloom has embellished his stories or, or made it more fantastical. And, and to be honest, by the end of it, we, we don't know what's true and what's fiction. It's it's not that mm. cut and dried. And, and I think there's there's also the thing that this, this feels in every way like a Tim Burton film, but also it also doesn't as well. Mm. I think one of the things that the Tim Burton films do is they have that, that incredible signature style, but this works with the emotional quality and this carries an emotional punch, which I, I, I think sometimes gets lost in a Tim Burton film due to the, the art direction and the showmanship involved on it. As I said, it was written for the screen by John August, who's a scriptwriter I like. It was based on a novel, Big Fish, a novel of mythic proportions by author Daniel Wallace. He was doing the rounds uh, of course it did, as every novel does, mm -hmm. and Steven Spielberg was initially interested to direct. He wanted to bring in Jack Nicholson for the role of Edward Bloom Sr. And Spielberg himself said that he made some choices in the scripting and in the production that he thought didn't end up doing the story justice. It then got passed on to Stephen Daldry as a potential director once Spielberg decided he wasn't going to make it. Uh, they went back to the script and they approached Tim Burton and the script, as they said, was in the best shape it had ever been. Burton was following the production of Planet of the Apes and wanted to get back to smaller filmmaking, the, the sort of films he made when he made Beetlejuice, for instance. Mm. And that shines in this film. It does feel like a smaller film. And for me, most of the best Tim Burton movies are the more creative smaller movies yes I, I love batman i think batman's great uh but he did he did fall foul with movies like planet of the apes yeah movies like edward scissorhands ed wood where burton gets a chance to shine and i think this works uh, so nicholson was originally in discussion with burton to play bloom and the idea at first was to do cgi imagery to make him look younger to play both roles as well as prosthetic makeup and then he saw ewan mcgregor talking about the fact that for a scottish person or a british person to use a southern american accent works so much easier to do there's there's certain recognition you've seen this before many many times actually where uh british actors will do um uh, southern american accents and 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 kind of nail it very very well and of course albert finney had that sort of verve that burton had seen him in playing in uh, tom jones for instance so great casting jessica lang alison loman whatever happened to alison loman she was uh, made such an impression on this um beautifully cast right down from the big stars right down to some of the uh, additional extras it's a it is a great and beautifully cast movie that everybody's role has some importance to it isn't it stunning how much alison loman looked like a young jessica lang yeah absolutely well? i'd forgotten that it was alison loman and when i see her i was thinking oh have they done de-aging technology and it's like oh no no that's wow Perfect casting. Even you, McGregor, looks kind of like a young Albert Finney. Yeah, they both have that roguish charm, that rakish charm that you need, that you saw. You can see in McGregor and you certainly saw in a, in a, in a young Finney. But you, you look around, like, the support cast around them. You know, Bonham Carter, obviously, it's a Tim Burton film. Helena Bonham Carter was in there. In the dual role of Jenny and the witch, brings a bit of heart to it, but also a bit of mystery. Danny DeVito is great as the circus ringmaster Amos, who has a harbours a dark secret that may or may not be true. Uh, Steve Buscemi as uh, Winslow, the poet turned bank robber. You've got the late, great Matthew McGrory as Carl the Giant in a real... Yes 
heartfelt role. And all of them evoke a fantastical world setting that borders that fine line between real and fantasy to perfection. I can't believe that I, I waited so long to revisit this film. I, I have seen it again a few times. Did you know there was a, a stage show musical of this uh, that John August uh, wrote? I, I, I don't know if it ever did well. I know it, it got some uh, some dates. I'm assuming not because it's still not playing. But I'd be interested to see it. I think that's the joy of this film. It, it's yeah. smart. It's a clever fantasy that's got an awful lot to say. It doesn't target children, but what I think it does is it, it, it targets the child inside of us yeah. that want to believe in fairy tales. We want to believe that the amazing will happen. And I think this film captures that perfectly. It doesn't matter that Edward Bloom's stories are fantastical or even true. It's the fact, as, as you pointed out, that uh, sometimes fathers and sons need to share stories to, to discover who each other are. Once it gets to Will telling that final story back to his father, that's when the tears really, yeah. really erupted. And that's when the whole film comes together so perfectly. If you've never seen Big Fish, thoroughly, thoroughly recommend checking it out. It is a very overlooked Tim Burton masterpiece and a very personal and very emotive journey to go on for a couple of hours. And if you haven't seen it, Andy, where can you find Big Fish? It's not available for free on any service at the moment, but you can rent it from all services for only like £2.49 to £3.49 for a HD one, or you can pick up the Blu-ray on all major retailers. We'll have another deep dive for you next week. And now it's time for this week's reviews. And Andy, you've seen a film that I didn't know you'd seen, but I gathered you would have seen it because I, I just knew you. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to figure out time in this week's schedule to get to see it because you know how much I want to see it. Yeah. Let's start our reviews off this week with Wes Anderson's Asteroid City. You're not here. Where are you? Asteroid City. What do those pulses indicate? The beeps and blips? We don't know. I reckon that alien don't mean no harm at all. Detain all possible witnesses and place them under group arrest. What happens next? Usually it's a war. That actually happened. How long can they keep us in Asteroid City? Gas up the Cadillac. What kind of mileage do you think that jetpack gets? We're about to find out. Wes Anderson over the years has gradually refined his style of quirky and beautifully framed storytelling. After the French Dispatch and this entry into his catalogue, it's safe to say he's now pretty much settled on going all out Wes on all of his films, which makes this one of my immediate favourites of his, but at the same time, one that I'm going to find difficult to recommend to the casual Wes Anderson watcher, and certainly not to anyone who's never seen any of the director's film output. Telling the story of a junior stargazer convention and the curious events that occurred around it in a fictionalised 1956 small town. The tale is told via the look at a presentation of a play about the events told through a TV documentary about the making of the play and the lives of the cast around it. In a quirky style that breaks not only the fourth wall regularly, blending the lives of the characters with the cast in marvellous ways, this is a snappily paced film that packs a lot of fun and detail into the dialogue, even if the story is rather slight. As you'd expect from a Wes Anderson film, the cast is stacked. Jason Schwartzman is back, of course, in a role that's central to the musings on loss and determination to find control over life as a war photographer named Oggy, coping with his grief whilst taking his children to stay with their grandpa, played by Tom Hanks. He forms a connection with the actress Midge Campbell, played by Scarlett Johansson, during their stay in Asteroid City for the convention and the quarantine that follows it. Jeffrey Wright is an army general who's hosting the Stargazer Awards, Tilda Swinton is a scientist, Stephen Park's in there, Rupert Friend, Matt Dillon, Leif Schreiber. The lineup of names in quick parts is huge 
and each add a flavour of quirk to the proceedings. Even Jarvis Cocker, yes, that Jarvis Cocker, pops up in a brief role. It's worth noting that the child cast who takes centre stage for a lot of the film are great. Special mention to Jake Ryan as Oggy's son, Woodrow, whose awkwardness and gradual connection with the other children plays out beautifully and convincingly. There were moments early in the film when some of the cast appeared to accidentally spike the camera, look directly at the camera. But of course, this is Wes Anderson, and nothing's accidental. We're watching a TV show about the making of a play and the play itself and the characters who are in it. The camera spikes are clearly deliberate to keep reminding us that we're seeing a fictional and awkward telling of a tale that sometimes blurs the lines between what is real and what is fiction within this completely fictional endeavour. If you're as much of a fan of Wes Anderson as I am, and I've never been let down by any of his output, this is for you. It's layered, it's detailed, it's beautiful, it's quirky. It's everything that you love about Wes Anderson in one film. However, if you found yourself sometimes underwhelmed or even turned off with some of his films, especially films such as Darjeeling Limited and Grand Budapest Hotel, which this shares a lot of DNA with, then approach this one with caution. If, however, you've never seen a Wes Anderson film, this is not the place to start. Go and watch Rushmore, Royal Tenenbaums and Life Aquatic, and then come back to me and let me know what you think about them, and I'll let you know whether this is worth checking out. But for those of us who are Anderson fans, this is Prime Anderson. So from the sublime, shall we go to the ridiculous? I'm talking about <laughs> one particular action sequence in Extraction 2, which is just visual ridiculousness. Um, yep, we're going to tell you our views on Extraction 2, which landed on Netflix last week. Tyler, you were clinically dead nine months ago. But you survived. You fought your way back. You just have to find out why. We gotta move! Alright, everyone okay? Kids, you good? Why did you come back for them? Do you know her? Tyler? Getting you out of here, okay? So Chris Hemsworth returns as the most inane name for any character I've ever seen, <laughs> Tyler Rake, who was clinically dead after his last mission. Yeah, the guy basically died, but he got better, to quote Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> While he's recuperating, he learns that his ex-sister-in-law and her two children need help to escape being in prison because they are imprisoned with uh, the father of the children, her husband, who is a Georgian crime lord. Cue Tyler Rake breaking into prison. And that's basically what the rest of the movie is. Breaking in, getting out, and the consequences of it. I need tell you no more about the plot, even though I think this is a deeper plot than Extraction 1, which, if I remember correctly, Andy, you weren't that enamoured by. No. The first Extraction, I thought, visually, looked great. And the cast were more than adequate. But it was just so generic that I just couldn't care for anything that was going on. The characters did, didn't gel with me. It didn't matter whether they were going to succeed or not, as far as I was concerned. It was just visibly a great action film. But that's it. So it was a very average experience. So I almost didn't watch Extraction 2 as a result. Because I was okay. like, maybe I'm not the core audience. But, you know, I didn't have any podcast editing to do. So I've had some spare time. So I popped <laughs> it on. 
And I have to admit that in the first 15 minutes, I thought I'd made the wrong decision because right. that whole, oh, he didn't die, hers in recovering, trope, 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 cliche, trope, cliche, leading to a montage training scene that looked like it was lifted straight out of Rocky Four, And I was just like, oh dear, where are they going? But then it got to that 21 minute extraction itself i'm just going to jump in there i actually thought the idea of that we saw him at the beginning of the film actually on the road to recovery because normally you you come back on a sequel and and you know your hero's as good as new uh, and and i thought it was quite interesting that we saw him saw him broken yes i, I agree with the the training <laughs> montage it was straight out of out of rocky in russia but I, I, I thought that was quite a, quite a bold move for me, that we saw that the man was physically broken from the events of the first film. It's something that's been done in so many action films when they've realised that they've killed off the main character that they want to bring back, that it just didn't bring anything new to the table. But thankfully, once it got to the extraction, that's when it all changed. Because, and doesn't it just? And I've been telling everyone who's not seen it, that just for this section alone, it's worth seeing the film. And if you can get to the end of this 21-minute single take, it wasn't really a single take. It took them 29 days to film. But it's so seamless. You can't see where the cuts are. And it goes from getting them out of a prison to a train to... it's got everything in there. It's got a car chase. The whole 21 minutes Helicopter flows chase. beautifully. If you get to the end of that and you're not heavily invested in the characters, the situation and the drama, then you're dead inside because it that sequence does everything to make you care. I was breathless by the end of it because I was so hooked into it. I started off with that sequence going, oh, this is an interesting single take. I'm looking for the splits. I'm looking for the cuts. And then I stopped looking because I just got drawn completely into it. And reading up on it, reading that they actually did pretty much 96 to 98% of it for real. There's limited CGI. The CGI is mostly blood sprays and small little like cuts and nicks that happen. The rest of it was done for real. They found locations to shoot in that would suit it. So they didn't have to do green screen and make it look a bit too cheesy. And they they set fire to Chris Hemsworth's arm multiple times. Oh, did they? Oh, I yes. didn't realise that. He could only have his arm on fire for 15 seconds at a time. So they kept setting fire to his arm and then like shoot for 15 seconds, then stop. And if it hadn't gone out automatically, he had to like pat it out, put, put another layer of gel on and then set fire to him again and continue the fight. Because he punches quite a few people with his arm <laughs> on does. fire. He punched people <laughs> while on fire. I mean, this film is, is not just an action sequence. It is, it is an assault on the senses and and in a day now when you've got john wick 4 and you are used to over the top action what i liked about this was yes the, the single take quality and and sam hargreave the director was a stuntman uh, he worked on things like uh, uh, the avengers endgame movie now he's turned director he knows where to put the camera yeah. that he's gonna get the the kind of maximum overkill on all of his scenes and there is something about it that makes it stand out from a John Wick, that makes it stand out from other action films that we've seen. And, you know, putting Chris Hemsworth right in the heart of these action sequences is part of that. And also proves that the physicality of Hemsworth and the charm of him. He, he, we never lose sight of Chris Hemsworth in any of these shots. Wherever he must have been doubled as a stuntman, I 
didn't notice that. I just saw Hemsworth. And having it one of my uh, neat things, you know, watched him in Limitless. This is a guy who, whose who's physicality is, is impressive, uh, as well as his charm. I did read somewhere... Because some people have been saying that that 21-minute sequence and the 11-minute sequence in the first film feel very video game It's like the camera over the shoulder following you as you're going through like a key scene in a video game. And people expect thought, well, maybe the director's influenced by video games. Apparently, he's never played any video games. Okay. His, his influences are just because, like you say, he's he's done stunt work. And so he knows what kind of works and where to put the camera to get the best shots. And he just wanted to grow that. And for someone to develop such a skill to make such a well choreographed sequence that not only looks great and just is thrilling and impactful but makes you care for every character caught up in it by the end of it so from that point onwards once this 21 minutes had played out that's it i was invested heavily in every character the rest of the film didn't match up to that 21 minutes but it didn't matter because it had earned my respect and it had earned my attention and i just wanted to see this go through to the end by the end of it with the closing moments I was just thinking, roll on Extraction 3. I cannot wait for a third film. I'm hoping that because of how successful they've been on streaming with the first two, that Netflix will actually give the third one a cinema outing because I would have loved to have seen this on the big screen. It had got a cinema out in uh, limited release. Very limited. More limited than they normally do. Well worth it. I enjoyed it. The missus didn't, but this film was just very, very me. Last film to talk about for me is Becky, which also turned up on Netflix. This got a cinema release in the US, uh, not so much in the UK, but I thought it was worth talking about because this is a throwback to old exploitation movies. And it really surprised me in a positive way. Come on, boy, let's go swimming. Let's oh, can you wait a sec? What is she doing here? You let her walk all over you. She's 13. Jeff, this gentleman lost his dog. Okay, well, why don't you give us your number? My dog is a Rottweiler. Purebred, or as the Germans call them, Rottweiler Metzgerhund. That's why you never let them mate with other breeds. You get the worst of both. Okay, I think it's time for you to go. Stay calm. I'm looking for a key. It has this symbol engraved on it. You seen it? No. Well, that leaves little Becky. Where's Becky? Wait, wait! He's gonna hold your dad still while I hurt him. I'm not gonna let them get away with this. Basically, Becky is a rebellious teenager trying to reconnect with her father during a week and get away after she's recently lost her mum. She is that troubled teenager who has got a bit of a dark side to her. But the trip soon takes a turn for the much darker when convicts led by, yes, you are going to be surprised, Kevin James, this turns into basically die hard with a kid. Yep, don't let me stop you there because this is proper, proper turn away from the screen exploitation. There is blood and there is gore aplenty. But what it is, it's a fun film to watch for all those who liked our exploitation movies. Becky's smart, not only the character, but the film itself. Stroppy teenager turns the tables on neo-Nazis. If you like your action to verge onto horror, this film absolutely works for you. Gruesome and violent, but incredibly enjoyable for all the right reasons. 
and seeing Kevin James as a bad guy, I know will get you into the mood, Andy, straight away. Uh, there is a sequel. It's done that well. There's going to be a sequel, Becky 2, The Wraith of Becky. I'm hoping it's going to be as much fun as this first one. I have seen that the reviews for The Wrath of Becky have been stronger than the first oh, one. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, the first one got in the 70s as an aggregate score. The, the sequel has uh, apparently ramped up to in the 80s. I know the sequel's got Sean William Scott in. This is the only reason that I know of these films is because Sean William Scott, I've been waiting for him to return to cinema for years. And so I, I'm, I'll jump on board with Becky. And as soon as the sequel comes out, we'll talk about it on the show. It is it's, it is an exploitation movie. It's bloody. It's home alone if it was done properly. But it is good fun. I had a, a, a great time with it. I, I read the script a couple of years ago and thought, this is interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll wait to see this. But uh, if you do like an exploitation movie, I can highly recommend becky that's it for the reviews but andy what can we expect coming up over the next week uh, at cinemas well we've already mentioned it earlier on indiana jones and the dial of destiny we'll be talking about that for definite next week animated movie from dreamworks ruby gilman teenage Krakenlands. i'll be talking about that next week because i'm going to find some slot to watch it dreamworks haven't let me down yet with an animated movie i've always enjoyed them to some degree so I'm willing to check this one out. And also on limited release is a film called Mother and Son. Over on Now TV and Sky, just landed at the moment, so it's already available on there, is Don't Worry Darling, which uh, got a lot of hate earlier this year. Mm. Didn't necessarily deserve it. I thought it was quite an interesting concept. And landing this week, The Woman King, which is definitely worth checking out. Over on Netflix, again, it's already landed. Matilda, the musical, has finally arrived in the UK. Run Rabbit Run also arrives this week, which sees Sarah Snook playing a single mother frightened by her young daughter's inexplicable memories of a past identity. The Witcher Season 3, which is Henry Cavill's final season, lands this week. And also animated movie Nimona, which sees a knight framed for a tragic crime who teams with a scrappy shape-shifting teen to prove his innocence. But what if she's the monster that he's sworn to destroy? looks quite good Ooh, i like the sound of that that sounds very me so there's a good mix of things predominantly across netflix cinemas and now tv well that folks that brings us to the end of our return to the film file after our week away i bet you really you never really missed us because we kept you entertained even though we were only there in spirit but before we go and we didn't do this last week but we do it every other time we're on and that's our neat thing stuff that we've enjoyed over the last week whether that be a film whether that be food, whether that be you name it, as long as we've enjoyed it, our neat things. Andy, what's your neat thing? <laughs> I am very late to this party. I have caught a few episodes of this show over the years, but never really jumped on board it in a big way. It's just like it's always been on in the background when I've been doing other things. But over the past week and a half, I have been ploughing through episodes of Taskmaster. Me and my daughter have both jumped on this. The first six seasons are on Netflix and we are in hysterics. Have you ever seen Taskmaster? No, it's it's passed me by. I've seen it, it crop up, but I, I, I know very, very little about it. Greg Davies and Alex Horn host it, and they've got a, a very, very awkwardly amusing dynamic between them. And each season has like a selection of five usually British comics who are given loads of really bizarre tasks to complete. And the one who gets the most points each episode wins the prizes. And the first task is always the prizes because each of the guests has to bring a prize relating to a specific topic. And from that point onwards, uh, on the very, fir very first season, from that point onwards, you start to realise that there's a strange competitive 
yet shockingly uh, underhand dynamic that goes on with a lot of comics. The cheating that goes on from some of them is great. The way that they twist the wording of the questions, the tasks, in order to benefit themselves. But the taskmaster, Greg Davies, plays the game back pretty well. And when it comes to the scoring, he can be very brutal. He can pick on people for no reason at all. But he can also make sure that some of the tasks have secret clues in them that if they actually paid attention, they'd win. There's a great one in the third season where they've got to burst, like the task is burst all the balloons as quick as possible. And there's a load of balloons on a fishing line. And Al Murray looks at it and goes, that looks like Morse code. And then just starts like finding a way to pop them all. Rather than going onto his phone and deciphering the Morse code that was there, which would have told him, burst two balloons and win. It's fun. It's great, simple entertainment. It's great to see like, you know, the best of British comedians just having fun and just trying to beat each other on silly tasks. Well worth checking out. That's Taskmaster. First six seasons are on Netflix. All the seasons to date are on E4 On Demand and also on YouTube. Give it a shot. Okay. Same as you. I'd only, I was aware of it. and I'd caught maybe clips of it, but never really jumped on board. But now that I've jumped on board, I get what the fascination is with it. It's just a good slice of challenging fun for a load of British comics. Okay, well, I'm going to point you in the direction of YouTube this week, and that is a YouTube series called Inside of You, presented by Michael Rosenbaum. Who he? The name sound familiar? Yeah. Yes. He was the guy who played, probably, I think, the, the best interpretation of the character. He played Lex Luthor on the Smallville series. This is basically a chat show in which he invites actors celebrities, comedians, onto his show to talk about what it's like to work in the industry, stuff that they have in common, some of the stuff they've had in common on sets. It's a real insight into not only being an an actor, but what happens on, on a set, how people play the part, the business, the relationships, and he does it in such a probing style that's quite laid back, very, very insightful and incredibly entertaining. So if you're a fan of Smallville, he's had basically most of the cast of Smallville take part in the series. The one that stood out recently uh, and and got a lot of traction is his relationship with James Gunn, who he was a friend Mm. of, inviting James Gunn onto the series. Of course, from that episode, there have been lots and lots of uh, uh, quotes about his take on the uh, DC universe, but it's insightful into an industry, into the people behind the industry and into those personalities that, that, uh, that we get to know. So people who've appeared on the show are the leads out of Supernatural. So Jensen Eccles and Jared Padalecki, Henry Winkler's been on it, Bruce Campbell's been on it, Tom Welling, of course, from Smallville, Nathan Fillion, James Masters from Buffy, which is very insightful to discuss the relationship they had with Joss Whedon. This is a really, really interesting look into acting. It can become a bit nerdy, but it also generally is incredibly insightful. Well worth watching. It's on YouTube. You can get them in small clips or you can subscribe to the the program uh, and see full episodes. Highly worth it. If you want to get into the psyche of what it takes to be an actor or a celebrity, and and it's just very, very well done. Check it out. Even if you're not a fan of podcasts, you shouldn't be listening to this really if you're not a fan. (laughs) It's been a podcast and and a talk show. And that is Inside of You, brought to you by the best Lex Luthor, in my opinion. Michael Rosenbaum. And that, folks, that's us done this week. And yes, we've been back in our collective studios delivering the show. Um, I do quite like our bottle episodes, Andy, but it's great to be back. 
yeah it's uh we've spoken for one hour 45 today so far so um this was a quick show today yeah we normally speak for over two hours but we have I think we've covered a lot, and plus we we basically just jumped in this week, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, we got straight. We, we normally into it. did for about fifteen twenty minutes, um, so we've, we've done about a, about the usual length of recording. Uh, it's great to chat again. Hopefully, we will see you. Uh, well, I definitely will see you for Indiana Jones this coming week. You will indeed. We'll be back next week. Remember, tell all your friends, get them to subscribe to the show. We'll be back here because truth is, I've been thirsty my whole life. I've never really known why. Hey, talking of audiences, you know, every week we do a uh, a challenge. Yes. And our, what do we call it? What do we call it? I don't know. It's been two weeks since we last spoke about Socials. this. Socials. <laughs> <laughs> uh, reminders on our social challenge. What did we set? And what did people say? We set a question. <laughs> <laughs> we did, which I have no memory of. So I threw it to you. Um. Ba-ba-bam. Hold on, scanning through my notes. I know my notes are in here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that I nearly added to the deep dive list, but I'll tell you about that later. I've had a loads over this past week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, City of God, I was going to mention that we should... Uh, I think I've got that in there because that's a film that I've never seen. Oh, and you should. Well, you should. Uh, I've, well, I've added in Fisher King. Oh, yeah, good choice. Well, yeah. if, you've, if you're a subscriber then you'll know before people who aren't a subscriber what that's going to be because you'll get that delivered straight away. Well worth adding to your collection. I'm going to be adding it into my physical collection because we don't trust streamers these days to not remove things. (laughs) Trust us, we're not telling you any lies. Can I, I'm just going to jump in there. I, I, (laughs) I'm going to cough. (laughs)